We turn now to Psalm 88 again. Psalm 88, our text is verses 1 and 2. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before Thee. Let my prayer come before Thee. Incline Thine ear unto my cry. The psalmist here, as I've already said, is under the worst of afflictions. There is no greater thing than to have the light of God's countenance taken away, to be under spiritual desertion. And of course, this believer is distressed deeply. But he is not despairing. As the Lord Jesus said to Ananias, speaking of Saul, who was just converted, Behold, he prayeth. And that itself is proof that this man has not despaired, but is exercising faith even in the darkness. Let's consider that proof before us in this text. Psalm 88, verses 1 and 2. We have before us a testimony of earnest, private prayer. Consider first the one who's being prayed to. And that is, O Lord. These capital letters show us this is the name Jehovah. Jehovah speaks to us that God is the God who is and who was and who is to come. That He is the infinite and independent God. That He is almighty and therefore that He is able and in His omnipotent mercy willing to help distressed sinners in their need. He opens up some of the meaning of this name when he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. And he says, The Lord, Jehovah, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That's the God that he is praying to. And we hear as well that he is God, which in Hebrew is Elohim. As you may know, this word is plural. And that plurality is a somewhat of a pointer to us that this God, one God, eternally subsists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. It's to that God that any believer has ever prayed, Old Testament and New. He's praying to the triune God. And notice what he calls this Lord God. He says that he is the God of my salvation. The God who has delivered me and who will because he does not change. And so you see even in the address of his prayer, this man in deep distress encourages himself himself, and also appeals to God. So that's the one prayed to, Jehovah Elohim of my salvation. Second, consider the prayer itself. 
for our purposes, we won't focus so much on its content as its character. Consider first that this prayer is private. He says, I, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry. Now, it's appropriate, as we might in psalm singing, to use this prayer corporately, as a body. But here, especially, is an example to us of private prayer, or as we sometimes call it, secret prayer. Christ speaks of this kind of prayer, as you're familiar, I trust, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 6, But thou... Notice the singular that's helpfully revealed to us in our English version. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. We have here a record of private prayer. But also, we see that it is earnest prayer. He is serious and needy in his prayer. That earnestness is shown by its urgency. Notice what he says. I have cried. And he speaks of my cry, which the word has a sense of a ringing cry. It is a cry that cries out to be heard. Notice as well how the earnestness is shown by its frequency. He says, I have cried day and night before thee. The Hebrew word order is odd, but literally it may help you. By day have I cried in the night before thee. Notice he's saying that day and night and night and day, I cannot stop praying to you in many times. And thus also we see that it's earnest by its importunity. This word speaks of a holy insistence in prayer. A discontent with merely having prayed and that prayer not yet be answered. This prayer, he says, must come before thee. He says as well, Incline thine ear. We see this come, this idea of before thee in verse 1 as well, and it's a different phrase. So twice in two different ways, he's spoken of this need for the prayer to ascend to God and be in His presence, that God would take notice of it, that He'd bend His ear, speaking in a human way of God, of the need that this man has not only to have his prayer heard, but to have it answered. The Lord Jesus, again in his teaching, opens up this idea for us. I spoke to you of the two men in the temple from Luke 18. Earlier in that chapter, Christ, we read it introduced by Luke, and he spake a parable unto them to the sin that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying there was in a city a judge. And you know it. It speaks of the widow who was importunate, how she came and said, give me justice against my adversary. Give me vengeance. Notice what the judge says, verse 5. 
Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. That kind of continual coming is exactly what we see before us. And as a model for us is how we ought then to come to God. So we have a testimony here of earnest, private prayer. And now for the sake of application, I want to open up the doctrine of this text more distinctly. What we've learned here and will learn is that earnest private prayer of this sort is a basic duty of the Christian life. So I brought you this morning, speaking of the broken heart is essential to true Christian piety. Here's another essential, another basic, earnest, private prayer. Now we can prove duties in various ways from the scripture. The three main ones, the categories of proof are a command, God tells us to do something, an example that's approved, someone God wants us to follow doing that thing, and then third, inferences as well, when we use our logic to reason from things the Scripture says to other things that follow necessarily from them. We'll consider those first two categories to prove that this is a basic duty of the Christian life. So first, the command. God tells us to pray. In general, we've heard it from 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Or we heard it as well from Luke 18.1, that we ought to pray always, always, and not lose heart. In specific, the Bible uses many other words to fill out what this duty is. We are called in Isaiah 55, 6, to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he may be near. We are told in Psalm 62, 8, to pour out our hearts before him. And we are told in countless other psalms to praise the Lord, to thank the Lord, to confess our sin unto the Lord, all which things cannot be done without prayer. They are parts of prayer. If we're commanded to do them, then By necessity, we are commanded to pray. But then, most especially, we're not only commanded in all these ways to pray, we are commanded to pray in private. We are indeed commanded to pray in the congregation, as we've done today. We are commanded to pray in our families. But God commands us as well to pray in private, We already saw it in Matthew 6, 6, but I want to bring you back to it to notice how Christ commands. He commands by assuming this is a normal part of the Christian life. But thou, when thou prayest, not if thou prayest, or thou oughtest to pray, but when thou prayest. And then he explains the manner of that prayer. But that assumption makes the command very powerful, doesn't it? Something the Lord Jesus expects to be normal in our life certainly ought to be. But then, especially in time of need, we are to do this duty of private prayer. The example, again, from Christ's own teaching 
is when the disciples are with him in Gethsemane. And they are under great temptation. And they don't know it. And Christ warns them. Verse 41, Matthew 26, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I hope you see clearly in general and in specific how God commands us to pray and indeed to pray earnestly and privately. But then second, examples in the scripture make this very clear. This is our duty. And no example does this more clearly or powerfully than that of Christ himself. Psalm 88 is an example from Christ. These psalms are his And they speak to us of the Savior's heart. Who, like him, was deserted by God? Deserted in a deeper and more awful way than any believer ever was or will be, crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not just forsaken of the sense of God's grace, but having wrath poured upon him, feeling hell. Now, the Lord Jesus did not stop being loved by God either. He was still the beloved son. He never was bereft of God's love for him. And yet, the sense of God's abandonment was deeper and fuller than any believer ever has. All believers have some light there at the end of the dark tunnel, and Christ was plunged into utter darkness So we ought to see Psalm 88 certainly as him speaking. And we see that kind of prayer being offered by himself in Gethsemane. He tells the disciples to pray while he gives his own example of laboring in prayer even to the point where he's sweating blood. But then also throughout his ministry. We see him always preaching and we see him always praying. And this duty was so important to the Lord Jesus that he was willing at the right time to withdraw from other duties, to withdraw even from the pressing needs of others. Turn to Luke 5, 16 and see a testimony of that. The Lord Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, knew knew exactly what time was for each duty. Lord, give us that wisdom. Luke 5, verse 16 We read, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. This statement should be meditated on. This was Christ's method. And here's an example of how, after a great time of preaching, he would withdrew to pray. But then immediately back to the teaching. But there were times when he wanted to, but didn't. Look with me at Mark 6. Mark 6. Verse 31. In Mark 6, 31, we have Christ intending to pray. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. We can assume in light of what we just read that one thing they would do in this rest is pray. But then it said they departed into a desert place by ship privately. Verse 32. And the people saw them departing and many knew him and ran afoot thither out of all the cities. His desire to be away was foiled by all the people and their needs 
Look at how he responds. Verse 34, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them. It wasn't time right then to pray. The needs pressed him on and he served them and healed them. And he began, it said, to teach them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But notice what comes. Verse 35 tells us the day was far spent. His disciples came unto him and they knew that they had to be sent away. He feeds them. But then, after the 5,000 men are fed, look at verse 45. He sends the disciples themselves away. And what does he do? Verse 46. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Notice what the Lord Jesus did in his priorities. He addressed the urgent needs when they were needed. And he did it to a great extent, and he fed them. Even when the disciples were ready to go, he kept serving, and yet he did not forget to pray. He was willing on that day to lose his sleep rather than to lose his prayer. He sent them all away, and he prayed for a large portion of the night, as we know, because they meet him later on the sea in the fourth watch of the night. So I trust you see It's worth this time to see our Lord Jesus' example because there is no greater example for us. And yet, you know He's not the only example in the Scriptures of earnest private prayer. We have David. The whole Psalter is like a directory of prayer and much of it is evidently private prayer and it's of of much use to your private prayer as well. We have many specific instances of Him crying out in the first person singular, in his needs. Psalm 51 we saw already. Psalm 130 we've sung. Psalm 22 as well, speaking prophetically, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And David doesn't do it just occasionally. It's habitual. It's regular. The text we've already heard twice now, Psalm 55, verse 17, David makes this crystal clear, that especially when he was in distress, his method was to pray without ceasing, continually, Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. And that threefold time of prayer that he mentions, evening, morning, noon, should bring to your mind as well another stunning example of earnest private prayer. And that's Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel, who prayed three times daily, and for whom that habit though not in itself commanded by God. We could choose to pray at other times. He was so convinced that in his circumstance, it was the right thing to do, and that it was worth continuing that honor to God, that God deserved it, and it was right and good, and all these reasons, and none of them had changed, even when the king himself said that he would die for it. David knew, excuse me, Daniel knew that it was worth it. It didn't change his duty. And we see that he went down upon his knees and prayed just as he'd done before. He was willing to lose his life for it, and in God's kindness, he did not. But what a striking example of earnest, private prayer. So I trust you see by these commands and examples that it is a basic duty of the Christian life. Now we come to application And I bring you again first to examination. You've seen the duty, now you need to ask, do I 
do it. And indeed, you can test your Christianity itself by this question of your private prayer. When a baby is born, sometimes, as I've experienced with my own children, there's a moment where the babies come into the world, but it's quiet. And it's a little bit frightening. You're not sure if that baby's alive. Ah, but then comes the cry. And that cry is proof that that child's alive. And so it is for the Christian that we cry to God in prayer is proof that we're alive. So I want to ask you, is that true of you? First, I want to break up this question. First, do you pray at all? This is where we need to start. Is there any time in your day of earnest, private prayer? Any time at all in your life? If not, you need to understand that total prayerlessness is a form of atheism. The Bible says as much in Psalm 14, verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? The same group of people he speaks of in verse 1 as the fool. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. To not pray at all is to live as if God simply does not exist, no matter what you profess. So do you pray at all? Second, do you pray much? Do you make a zealous and frequent use of this duty of prayer? A good example to test your heart is that of Mary and of Martha. You remember in Luke 10 how Christ himself draws on Mary's example and says that she has chosen the good part. He speaks particularly of her sitting at his feet and hearing his word. But prayer as well is a way we sit at Jesus' feet and have communion with him. Are you in it much? Do you consistently choose that portion as your, the chief portion of your life? Another way to ask this question is, do you pray consistently? Paul says pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean at every moment in our life we're on our knees, but is there a consistent pattern of prayer? Or to explain it as many have, it's like the sacrifices and the altar in the Old Testament. How the fire was always burning. Sometimes it burned low, and sometimes it was flaming up. The reason it was able to burn all day is because there were certain times in the day in which more wood was added and the sacrifices on top. Those times in the day are like your stated times of prayer. And there's a way we obey this command to pray without ceasing by having stated times, just as Daniel did. But it's those stated times that cultivate in us that low burning that goes on throughout the day in which we are living in a spirit of prayer And at times, like Nehemiah when he was before the king, offering up in a time of need a quick prayer to the Lord. Do you pray consistently without ceasing in that way? Is there any echo in your heart of what Psalm 88 says? I have cried day and night. 
before thee. That morning and evening and at noon, I will pray. Is that true of you? Can you say it with a sincere heart? Another question, do you pray earnestly, urgently? Do you pray in order to prevail in prayer? Are your prayers like the wrestlings of Jacob in verse 32? Saying to God, I will not let thee go until thou bless me. Or are you indifferent to whether you obtain what you have asked? If so, you're not really praying. It's not enough just to say things to God that you need. True prayer is not content until it has received its object. In Matthew 15, we have a beautiful testimony to this. How the Lord Jesus in His wisdom, even as He did for the author of Psalm 88, tested the woman of Canaan by holding her off and by saying to her that you can't have the food that's for the children. You're a dog as a Gentile. Oh, you remember her response? How she said, Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus himself said, Great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. She would not take no for an answer from the Lord. That's what true earnest prayer always does. I want to help you in answering these questions so that you don't answer them wrongly. On the one hand, if you can't say yes to any of these, or if there's any of them that you can't say yes in any degree at all, then you're not a Christian. As I said, the Christian cries. If you're not crying, you're not a Christian. And you need to face that fact. Let that test fall on you. But you shouldn't make a mistake here because it's true, and to a degree it's always true in every Christian that we are weak in these things. And weakness of grace does not take away the truth of it. And you should not let Satan come in and make you think that you don't belong to God just because you struggle or are weak in your prayer when you indeed have true, sincere prayer. But if through this examination you have known those weaknesses and you can say, yes, I don't pray as I ought, or as much as I ought, or consistently, or as earnestly as I ought, then you ought then to labor with that knowledge to change that fact. And that brings us then to exhortation after examination. And the command, right from our text, is that you, thou, singular, private, Christian, would cry day and night before the Lord, that you would practice this earnest, private prayer. I want to give you two helps for this. The first is that if this is to be done, you must remove the barriers to it. And there are many. I want to bring up just a few. One, I have no time. Well, Christian, let me 
speak to you plainly. Daniel was the first of three presidents that over 120 princes. The rule of the kingdom was basically given to him somewhat of a prime minister in the whole empire. And he prayed three times a day without fail. Are you busier than Daniel? David was the king of the United Kingdom. If any man was busy, surely David was. But David prayed, as we have seen. Who was busier than the Lord Jesus Christ? You saw that in the testimony that we saw. Constantly pulled by the needs of people and by his own heart's desire to meet those needs. And yet, he was zealous and diligent in prayer. Outside the Bible, one example I want to give you, and there are many I could, is Martin Luther. It was said of him that he prayed a minimum of three hours every day. If you know what a blessing he was to the kingdom of God, that's no surprise, is it? Just reason from that, you want to be a blessing to the kingdom of God? Pray. Pray. But Martin Luther was busy. He lived 62 years, and in those 62 years, if you only consider his writings, he wrote what is now in the most recent edition collected as 121 volumes. And add to this that it was said of him that he intentionally took the moments that were best suited to his study, and instead he used them for prayer. That was how important that it was to him to pray. Another example from the Scottish church, John Welsh, or Welch of Ayr. He preached every day in his ministry. And every day he prayed seven to eight hours. Do you have no time now, Christian? Be honest. Look at these examples and put away your excuses. Put away your excuses. You might say, I have work, I have family. Yes, these men have that too. You might even say, and this sounds more spiritual, well, I go to church and I have family devotions. I have to read my Bible. Well, yes, you do. And you ought to. Should any of those things take away this duty of prayer? No. And if you're using them as an excuse, you need to stop. There is time, and you must make time. Remove that barrier. Another barrier. You say, I have no urgency. Well, this is a, this is a problem. I'm going to bring more motives to you soon. But one I can leave you with on this question is one that I wish I thought of more from James. James 4, verse 2. Ye have not, because ye ask not. Think on that. All of your troubles, all of your temptations that foil you, all of your sins, all of the ways in which you're not succeeding in the Christian life as you would like, all the things you lack in the things of this world. Why is it you haven't prayed? You haven't prayed. Everything you need is right there, God willing to give it to you. The reason you don't have it is because you haven't prayed. I hope that can help you put away this claim 
Or this reality, it may be, that you don't have urgency in prayer. Another, a third barrier. I have no discipline. Well, that also might be true. But if it's true, you shouldn't be content with that. Indeed, from what I can see in my own life and many others, this is probably the most common problem. That the reason you don't have discipline in prayer is because you don't have discipline in life. You never know when you'll wake up in the morning. You'll never know when you go to bed. You never know what your Monday and your Tuesday and your Wednesday will be like. You have no schedule. Your life is flying by the seat of your pants. It's not a good life. That's not the way God intended you to live. We are to use our reason to live a reasonable and structured life. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus shows us how we adapt to things that come. We're not in charge of providence. And yet, what you are in charge of, you ought to be disciplined about. I give you, as an example of this, the Lord Himself in His creation. Think how God was so perfectly orderly in the six days in which He made the world. Every work for its time and its day. Think of that as you think of structuring your day and including in that structure this duty of prayer. A fourth barrier. You say, I have no confidence in prayer. And this, this would be, indeed is, a great barrier to prayer. But don't you know, O oh Christian, that it's prayer itself that God would use to build your confidence? And so if you come and you say, I'm not sure the Lord will receive my prayers and I fear this and I'm troubled by that. Well, come and tell God that and ask Him to help you. I'll bring you a familiar text here so that you might know He will. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, that is, be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Is that not clear to you? If you lack any of the peace of God, Here's the way to have it. Pray. Pray, casting all your cares on Him, for He careth for you. That will dissolve your fears and build your confidence. But fifth, a barrier, and the greatest one is, you say, I have no faith. Now, that is true of you. There is a sense in which you cannot pray. Because without faith, your prayer is sinful. Without faith in Jesus Christ, you have no mediator. You can't come before God. He won't hear you. You're not being cleansed by faith. You have a life that's wicked. And God will not hear the prayers of the wicked. And the Bible says that and you need to deal with it. But you ought not deal with it wrongly by making that an excuse not to pray. Because, yes, without faith, you won't have proper prayer. But you also won't have faith if you don't pray for it. And if you don't have faith, my friend, hear me, unbeliever, 
you need to go ask God for it today. He's able to give it. And He's willing. But you must go to Him. You can't make it in yourself. You're helpless. You're dead in sins. Oh, but God is able. You need, you need more than any of us today to pray to God. But at the least, make up your mind of this, that yes, it is a great sin not to believe in Christ. It's a great sin to be far from God. But it's also a great sin not to pray. And you cannot make an excuse of committing one sin because of another. Do not make unbelief an excuse for you to add sin to sin and also not pray. An illustration of this principle that will be helpful for some of you is with children. You know, we have a general hope for our children and we want them to come to the Lord and we pray for them to come to the Lord and we look expectantly to see what the Lord will do. But He hasn't given a particular promise head for head for each of them for their regeneration or conversion. And even the ones that are elect and will be converted, we don't know when. The Spirit blows wherever He wills. And so we don't know always when our children or if they are true believers. But don't we teach them to pray still? Yes, we do. Because they'd be sinning not to. And that's a simple answer to this dilemma some parents have. Yes, you ought to teach your children to pray. When you teach them, you teach them that they ought to believe and that only believing prayers are acceptable to God. You teach them both things. And I teach you today both things. If you have no faith, then by grace... You must come to Christ and believe in Him, but you must also pray. So remove the barriers that might come. But second, a help in your crying day and night before the Lord is that you'd meditate on motivating reasons. And I cannot think of a greater motivation than that which this psalmist gives himself. It's the first thing out of his mouth. Oh, Lord God. Jehovah, Elohim. The one triune God. Consider with me how the three persons in their work motivate us in prayer. Consider the Father, the one whom in particular we are to address usually and regularly in our prayers. Christ tells us of Him In chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 11, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask Him? Let the heart of the Father, the heavenly Father, and His willingness to give good things to His own children motivate you to come earnestly in your private prayers to His throne. Think of the Son of God. Think of His own prayers for you, Christian. John 17, even on this earth, as a model and a preview of the great work He's gone to do in heaven to pray for us there. We read of that work in such a beautiful picture in Revelation. It speaks to us in Revelation 8.3 of an angel who comes and offers much incense upon an altar. And that the prayers of the saints are a mixture of that incense and with it ascend up into heaven as it comes out of that angel's hand. This is how prayer works. Christ prays and in Christ we pray. 
And though our prayers are mixed with sin, it's purified by his perfect prayer. Oh, and they ascend to heaven on the cloud of his own incense. That Jesus is praying for you, Christian, what a great motivation for you to pray through him to the Father. But then think of the Spirit as well. In his particular work, also as an intercessor of sorts, not interceding outside of us and for us, but interceding inside of us and with us by his power teaching us to pray. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, even in our groanings. The Spirit is working there to make our prayers acceptable to God. So think about the three persons of the Godhead that should motivate you in your prayer. Think about the promises that this triune God has made for prayer. We've seen some of them already. I'll take you back to Matthew chapter 7, just before what we read about the goodness of the Father in being willing to receive prayer. Christ speaks more generally before that in these familiar words. Hear them afresh, Christian. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. I take you, I could take you many places. If you've read the Bible, you know this is everywhere. How often is the Lord Jesus especially encouraging his disciples in prayer? Think of Matthew 21. This is verse 22. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. People of God, I, I pray the Lord would give me words to impress this in your heart. Everything according to God's will you could ever want is promised to you. God has written you a blank check. And all you have to do is fill it out and give it back to him. And he will give you all his riches. He'll give you everything. Think about the example of Esther before Ahasuerus. And how she comes in and she's worried. But the golden scepter is extended. And he says, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. Oh, Christians, we have much better. The golden scepter's held out. We've been received. The way is open. The throne room's there. You can go in at any time. And God doesn't say half my kingdom. He says, take it all and take me with it better than any kingdom. My own self I'll give to you. Christian, oh, shouldn't that drive you to that throne? To that throne room where you can ask anything of God and he will give it. But then third and finally, to motivate you, I call you to remember your own need. And that was the great motivation of this psalmist in our text, in Psalm 88. Oh, he was needy. He could not but pray because he was so needy. And to help you in your prayers, then remember your own needs. Remember your sin. Remember how by sin 
you're guilty. And let that guilt drive you to the throne of grace to be washed again by the blood of Jesus Christ. I remind you again what I already said this morning, but this is another useful help. If you have trouble with praying long, you want to pray with more time, not just filling time, but but good time praying before the Lord. Confess your sins. Confess your sins. We have so many. And if you think you don't have that many, just start and ask the Lord to help you. And as you pray and confess, pray the Lord will give you grace to do it more. And as He will, it will come out and you'll you'll wonder how much time you have because there's so many things to confess. That's just one help. You could apply the same to thankfulness or to any of your other needs. Come and pour them out before the Lord. But remember also your need under affliction. The various afflictions of this life, including this most dire affliction of a lack of assurance, of desertion, by God himself. Use that as this man used it to drive you to prayer. We ought, of course, not pray for affliction, knowing our own weakness. But we don't need to pray for it. I trust you already have plenty of it. Recognize what you have and use it. Use the worst things in your life. Use your troubles, your griefs, your sorrows, your disappointments, Use them all to send you to your secret place, to send you to the closet where you might lay them all into the lap of God. And as that happens, Christian, take comfort. Because of all those sorrows have this result, that you are crying day and night to God. That is a success. And even if that were the only grace the Lord had in mind in bringing that trouble into your life, that you would learn to pray to Him, it's worth it. It's worth all of our sorrows and troubles that we would cry to our God. Let's stand to pray.